Romans 8, 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your great and incredible love. God, the testimony here in your word of how deep and wide it is and how it's impossible to be separated from it. Lord, I would ask today that you would please anoint me to preach your word, that you would help me to be spirit-led, and that the hearts that hear would be prepared even now for your word, that it would be planted and it would bear fruit for your glory. God, do a miracle in the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you uh, think of Romans, the first eight chapters, Paul has taken us on quite a journey, hasn't he? When you think about it, you're looking at chapter 1 where all people are only under condemnation. And then we get to chapter 8, and for those who believe, there is no condemnation, none whatsoever. Quite the journey in the first eight chapters in God's Word in the book of Romans. And then we get to verses 31 through 39 in Romans chapter 8. And as we go on this journey, it's almost like climbing a mountain and you get to the peak right here. And this is the peak of the first eight chapters. And it's just wonderful because it's the summit where Paul is not, if you notice, he's not teaching as much as he's praising in this section of Scripture. He is looking at all that has happened in those first eight chapters, and he can't help but praise God and proclaim things that are true about us because of Christ. And it is known, this particular verses from 31 through 38.9 are known as the hymn of security. Isn't that cool? The hymn of security. Because what it shows us is that nothing can ever separate believers from God's love. Nothing. Take a look at God's word. We're going to go back to verse 28 because all this ties in. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? Or, it says here, since or because God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? A lot there. But it's all tied together. It's all brought together. And you'll see more of the way that the Holy Spirit just knit this section of Scripture together. 
what it shows us is that the father made the supreme sacrifice of his very own son. There was no greater sacrifice ever in the entire existence of time, of this universe, than what the father did by offering his son as a sacrifice for all who would, by faith, receive the gift of salvation in Christ alone. He provided our justification is what he did. And that was a huge, huge sacrifice. And so what Scripture is saying here in verses 31 and 32, after it comes through all the, 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 progress or the, the, the process that God is taking us through to refine us and make us more like Christ, he comes to these verses and we see that if he gave his son the greatest sacrifice of all, the greatest gift of all, then why would he withhold lesser things relatively? Why would he do that? Why would he withhold lesser things that are necessary for us to persevere in our faith? He provided our salvation, and he's not going to leave us hang out there. Hopefully they make it to the end. But God gave this great sacrifice, and he says, you know what? I'm going to give you the lesser things. I'm going to enable you to persevere to the end. I'm going to work in your life for your eternal good. And I'm not going to withhold anything in order for that to be accomplished. And I'm going to work towards your eternal glory. And there's nothing I won't do. Nothing. Because it's all secondary compared to offering my son. And we see that Nothing can derail God's holy purposes for your life. Why? Well, because God gave you his son. And anything else is lesser. And that's the point that he's making here is that this gift that God has given is so wonderful, so great, that God would not nullify Jesus' sacrifice by not giving you what you need to keep saved and make it to eternity. It's a work of God from beginning to end. And Paul has laid that out through all these eight chapters, and now he's coming to this crescendo and saying, listen, this is what God is doing. Let's just celebrate who he is and what he has done. And he says, you know what? The salvation is yours. I have taken care of it. I have provided Christ, and the lesser things I will provide as well. But he knows that there's going to be accusers that are going to come. They're going to lie to us. The accuser is Satan, as the word of God says. He's the accuser of the brethren. There's the world that's going to accuse you, saying, nah, uh-uh. And the hardest one of the accusers is yourself. Yourself. Because we need to, by faith, believe all of God's word. And sometimes we can accuse ourselves and say, you know what, I've fallen so far short. It can't be saved. I don't deserve to be saved. And we don't. But what is the truth of God's word? And what we see here is that now as we move on in this section of Scripture, Paul is again saying, you know what, all our accusers, they not only lack the power to bring condemnation into your life, but also, they do not have the authority to bring condemnation on God's elect children. They can't do it. They don't have the power. They don't have the authority. Take a look, God's word again. 
And I wanted to look, jump back to verse 1, chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And he continues to go throughout the whole chapter. Now he's closing up the chapter and he's saying the same thing in a different way. 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who can do it? Who can, who can make a charge that you don't deserve or that you should not be eternally with God? Who can make that kind of a charge? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's just kind of laying out the legal side. There's a shift here, and it's almost judicial language that is being spoke here. And he's saying, listen, who can withstand God? He's the omnipotent God. And now he's also the judge, and he is the one who justifies. God is the one who wrote the law. God is the one who enforces the law. And he alone, it says here, is the one who condemns or justifies. God does all that. And the judge has declared all Christians, you got to hear this, not guilty. Price paid in full. You are justified by faith in Christ's atoning work. He came because we were separated from God, no hope at all whatsoever of being made right with God in our own. He came and he lived that perfect life, the atoning work of Christ. It's not just his death. It's his life of perfect obedience to God through his thoughts, words, and deeds without sin. Then he went to the cross and he was punished for all sins who, that the Christians would commit. And then three days later he rose. That's the atoning work of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? And what he's saying is, is that, you know what? We're justified by that atoning work. So how, how could the judge condemn us as Christians when Jesus was already condemned in our place? That would be unjust. That's the point he's making here. He said, well, Jesus was the one who came and he paid that price. And so for the Father now to condemn those who have received that gift of salvation, it wouldn't be just because punishment has already been paid. Christ paid it for us. So there is no more condemnation. That's why when you read this chapter, I don't see how people can say you can lose your salvation. You can't. Not if you read chapter 8 in Romans. You can't. If you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot lose your salvation because God is the one who works it from beginning to end, and that's the point. How could this judge who proclaimed us not guilty then condemn us? It wouldn't make any sense. Now, Satan's accusations are valid. I don't know about you, but you know I still struggle with sin in my life. I'm a believer. I know I'm going to spend eternity in heaven with God by God's grace. But I still struggle with sin. So if, this, if Satan were to stand in that court before the Father and say, well, now time out, Father, Judge, Dan's sinning. He deserves 
to be separated from you for all eternity. His accusations are valid, aren't they? Yesterday, maybe even this morning, we're guilty of sinning. His accusations are valid, but because of Christ's imputed righteousness, his accusation can't stand in court. He can't do it. He can't, he, he can't stand in court and make these accusations and then, okay, God, not well yet. You know, you make a good point. Dan did sin and broke the law. But because of Christ's imputed righteousness to us, what happens is that the Father can say, you know what? All of Dan's sins were paid for. All of them. Not just when he came to know Christ and everything before then, but all of them. They were all covered by the blood of Jesus. Every one of them. And because all of his sins were paid for on the cross by Christ, my statement of not guilty stands. Your accusations may be valid, but they don't bear weight because he has been forgiven. That's what's happening here. He's saying they, 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 can't, they, they don't have the authority. God is the judge and he has declared us not guilty by reason of Christ's atoning work for us. So we can rest in that. We don't have to worry about what could happen. In other words, if you could think of it this way, once the Father's judgment is satisfied, right? Once the judge has said, not guilty, price paid in full, that moment that you came to Christ by God's grace and mercy and you received that gift of salvation, at that moment, your judgment was satisfied. It was satisfied. And from that point on, any accusations against you, case closed. Don't want to hear them. Taken care of. Oh, not guilty. That's what we see here. Not guilty because of the blood of Christ. Which means that we can never be condemned. Never be condemned. That means that you can never lose your salvation. But what if I struggle with sin and it's a deep dive? Might be. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, a true believer, then you know what? The blood covers that and God will draw you and restore you. So you can never be condemned. You can never lose your salvation and you can never, ever be separated from the love of Christ. Never. No matter how, what's going on in your life, you cannot be separated from the love of Christ. And we have to get that deep in our hearts because the accuser who lives within, we don't want to believe that, do we? We want to wrestle against that because we want to accuse ourselves because we know ourselves. And yet, God's word says no. You are not losing your salvation. You are not under condemnation. You are not separated from the love of God. And that's so wonderful because it's about God, not us. He's the one who holds us. But what the enemy, Satan, does in our flesh is we try to use terrible trials in our life to cause us to begin to doubt the love of God. Difficult things. That, well, where are you, God? Take a look. Paul continues on in this section of Scripture. Romans 8, 35 through 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress 
or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are not regarded, are we not, are we, wait once, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's easy to mistake that list there of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, etc., etc. It's easy to mistake that as signs that God is angry at us. That God has abandoned us. It's easy to do that. Hard things going on in life. And they keep coming like wave after wave sometimes in some of our lives. It's easy to wonder, God, where are you? Now, I want you to know that if adversity is coming into your life, it's just, you know, it's there and it keeps coming, I want you to know that that should cause us to do some inner reflection and saying, God, are you disciplining me? Now, God's not going to abandon you and his love has not changed but he disciplines those he loves, and you're his child. So we have to ask God, God, is this a discipline in my life? Are, are you, is there something you're doing that, you're, that I've done that you're disciplining me for? But you see, the enemy likes to come in here and lie. He says, no, where's God? You've lost the love of God because you're a sinner, and that accusation and all those things are true. He tries to get us to turn our eyes away from God and understanding the truth of Scripture. And what we see is that the love of Christ is with us in all these devastating ways that adversity comes to us. The love of Christ is there. It's there and it will never be removed. Though you may not feel like it is. I get it that some of us are going through very, very difficult things. And we wonder, where are you, Lord? And we... Know that he loves us, but it doesn't feel like it when you're going through the middle of those things. And Paul is not trying to diminish the difficult things that happen in our lives, nor the the responses, the emotional responses that we have to those things. He's not doing that, not trying to lower them down. He knows what he's talking about, right? This could almost read like Paul's personal note, this is what has gone on in my life. And yet, God loves me. All these things making me more than a conqueror. You see, even though you don't feel like the love of God is there, it is. Because you need to notice something in this section of Scripture. First part, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You know what that means? That means His love towards you not your love towards him. That's important to know because sometimes our love can grow cold, can it? I'm just being honest. Our love for Christ can grow cold. Things happen in our lives. But you see, this is talking about Christ's love for us. And that's why in the midst of all these difficult things, we can be assured that Christ's love is there, that he has not abandoned us. That this is is something that God is going to use for our good, although it may be difficult to understand. Very difficult at times. 
But what happens is that these trials, things that he's talking about here, tribulation, distress, distress was, that word is used for an enclosed prison that you can't stand up and you can't do anything. It's, you're pressed in. Distress, persecution, we know what that is. Famine, nakedness, being so poor you can't even clothe yourself. Danger, sword. Those things work a deeper dependence on God, don't they? They do. We kind of can live our lives separate from dependence upon the Lord when things are going well. So these things, by God's grace, come into our lives and they show us, you are dependent upon me, Dan. This is hard stuff. You can't handle it without me. So what happens is God is working something. These trials work a deeper dependence on God and they produce this eternal glory that is talked about earlier in this chapter. They make us strong. They make us strong. And there's something that is consistent in this section of Scripture that many people don't see is that adversity is part of the all things that God has talked about in Romans chapter 28, or 8, verse 28. This is part of the all things that God uses to conform us to the image of Christ. Take a look. Same verse. Look at 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now we go to 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together. So all things work together. Then we go into verse 32. And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us what? Give us all things. It keeps coming back to all things. And the all things that was talked about in verses 28 was about he will do all things in order to conform us to the image of Christ. And it's consistent as we continue to go through these things. Knowing all these things, what things? The tribulations, the trials. What's he doing? He's working to conform us to the image of Jesus, that we would become dependent upon God more and more and see God's grace and mercy in our lives. His, his enabling strength. So we see that consistent in this section of Scripture. It's about God working his will in our lives, making us more like Jesus in all things. In all things. All things work together. He will graciously give us all things so that we will become like Christ and finish the race that he is the one who started in our lives. And know in all these things, no matter what it is, that's our God. And it's so neat to see what happens here. Again, this is Paul's praise. He's speaking from experience. And he, he shifts and he says something that's so sweet and so wonderful because he says that, you know what, God's love enables us not just to persevere through these trials. We're not just going to hang on by just our nails. He says it's even better. It's even better. That in suffering and in adversity, you're not just going to persevere, but you're going to be more than conquerors. That's what he's saying here. You're more than conquerors in these situations through every trial that we face for God's sake. He says, you're not just going to persevere. You're going to be more than conquerors. What does that mean? The Greek right there, conquerors, you notice there's a, a right in the center of that Greek word, N-I-K-O, Nike. That's where it, conquerors. 
But this is super, super conquerors. Not just conquering, super conquering. And you go on and you see the word also means vanquish beyond. Decisive victory. That's what God's talking about, about you and I in our trials and what happens as God enables us to not only persevere, we become super conquerors through those things, even in the midst of them. That's what God's word says. Now, I have to ask you, when you think of a super conqueror, what picture do you get in your head? What do you think of? Do you think of some guy standing on the hill waving the flag in all destruction behind him? But he's the one who conquered. The guy who runs into that town, rides in on the horse, I am the super conqueror. That's what we think of, don't we? Because especially in our Western mindset, conquering means winning in a specific way. And what we see here is that when you think of a conqueror, I'm guessing... I'm guessing you're not thinking of tribulation, somebody who's in tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. My guess is that when you were thinking in your head what a super conqueror is, you weren't thinking about those things. But that's exactly what God's word ties super conqueror to. You probably weren't thinking of a super conqueror there, and you were probably not thinking of a super conqueror here. Take a look at these verses. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 29. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger of, from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, Dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is also the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. Was that part of your idea of a super conqueror right there? Yet when we think of Paul, we think of Paul, man, that guy is, that, that guy... He is a, that guy was solid. He was a conqueror. That's the point Paul's making. He says, I am. Because look at what he says. Verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? And look at, you jump down just the next chapter, talking about the thorn in his flesh. And he, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Isn't that weakness all listed above there in chapter 11? That's what he's talking about. It's tying together. And he comes down, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Why? Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'm a super conqueror because of Jesus. I'm going to boast in my weaknesses because it's about Christ. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How could he say that? Because of Christ. Because of Jesus. When I am weak, then I am strong. God's doing a work, and he's doing a work in me. And in my weakness, I can see that. And God is enabling me. God is doing this work. That's what he's saying 
there's an overwhelming victory because in times of weakness, God gives us divine strength. And the best way I can describe this is when you see somebody in trauma because of something that happens and they have the peace of God upon them, you go, how can they do that? You are seeing this scripture come alive. Come alive because they're more than conquerors. God is enabling them. He's empowering them in their weakness, in all these terrible things that they can still say, well, I, I still praise God and I'm not blaming God. That's a work of God that is happening that is making them more than conquerors in that time where other people would come apart without Christ. Saying, no, uh-uh. This is a work of God. In my weakness, I am made strong. That's why I'm a super conqueror. Because of what God is doing in me. He's making me more like Jesus, even in the difficult times. And the Holy Spirit will enable us to emerge victorious in this sense. In this sense. Again, American mindset, what do we mean by victorious and super conqueror? Different than Scripture. Holy Spirit enables us to emerge victorious in the sense that we will grow in our faith. We'll grow in our hope for, for God, our delight in God in the midst of everything else taken away. He will enable us to emerge victorious as we learn to love God even more. You could love a sinner like me, Lord. I just responded terribly, God. Yeah, nothing separates you from my love, Dan. He's making us more like Jesus. And as we are becoming more like Jesus, we are becoming super conquerors, regardless of what is happening. And you know what? If the father felt it was necessary to cause the son to suffer, I would guess he also sees it as necessary to cause his children to suffer in order to become more like Christ. It's a beautiful picture. It really is wonderful. When you think of your life in difficult times, there are moments of doubt and moments of fear. I know there are in my life. You're going through it. You think you don't see any end, no light at the end of the tunnel. Things are hard. They're afraid. You don't know how you're going to get out of it, how you're going to make it through, what's going to happen. But by God's grace, your faith will endure. It will. might get shaky, but it will endure because it's a work of God in your life. You can't lose your salvation. This word conquerors here, in, well, in, in the previous uh, slide, is in present tense. It means this, keep on winning a glorious victory. So that means you will keep on winning a glorious victory. That's what God promises you in your life. You'll keep on, keep on winning a glorious victory. Why? Because you're so tough? No, because you're weak. You've got a great God. And uh, who can come against God? He's omnipotent. Nothing. And that's why it says here that absolutely nothing can separate us from God's love or thwart his plans for your life. Nothing. Take a look. Romans 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, your eternal existence, death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, the future, the future, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth. Probably means heaven and hell or some spatial connotation. Couldn't find a real nail it down, but nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how he concludes his praise. Through the first eight chapters of Romans, going from only condemnation to no condemnation. In our struggle with sin or worldliness, our Father's love is not diminished or terminated. It's unconditional love that we have a hard time understanding. And the reason that's true is because of this. Because the Father's love is rooted in God's choice of you before the foundation of the world. That goes all the way back, right? That's why I started out with 28 to 32. Because it's all tied together. All of it. And that's why we can be sure. Because by, God, by God's choice before creation of time, he chose you. And his love didn't diminish then. And it's not going to now. That's the way our God is. And the ultimate demonstration of that love is Christ on the cross. That's the ultimate demonstration. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. That's the love of God on the cross. For you, for me, from the foundations of the world, God's plan. And nothing can take you out of Father's hands. Nothing. Not even yourself. You can't jump out of his hands. Really? You think you're that powerful? Nothing can do it. What we see is that God's grace in the gospel nullifies all opposition. All opposition against you is nullified because of God's grace. God's grace silences all the accusations against you from the enemy, from the world, from yourself. God's grace silences all accusations against you. God's grace overrules all condemnation. That's why Romans 8 started out, now. for now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, God's grace expressed in the gospel overrules all condemnation. God's grace overcomes all adversity. It conquers all adversity. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. And that is amazing. That is amazing. You see, your salvation is secure forever. Forever. Hear that and receive it and believe it. Your salvation is secure forever. And nothing, preachers always say this, they go, and what does that word all mean? It means all. Well, you know what the word nothing means? Nothing. Exactly what it says. Nothing can ever separate Christians, believers, from God's love. So now, hearing all that, what's our response? Okay? What's our response? What's your response to all that? I hope it's just like Paul's. Because 
Remember what I said in the beginning. This is the, the first eight chapters coming to the peak, and it seems like Paul is just praising God. He's saying, there's no accusations against me. There's no condemnation. No matter what happens, I'm more than a conqueror. All these things are true because nothing can separate me from the love of God, and he's just praising God is what he's doing here. Paul is overflowing with gratitude. Paul is realizing his incredible dependence upon God, that he is secure in his faith because of what God has done, what God's word for us tells us. And he praises God. And I'm thinking that for us, if we take this message deep, that's our response, amen? That we would praise God, thinking of the greatness of our salvation, the greatness of our God who takes us from the foundations of the world to the end all the time by his strength and his power. Praise him. He and he alone is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we stand in awe of you. You present your word to us and you show us your greatness and you show us the incredible gift of our salvation, Lord, and that you are the one who is founder, author, the one who completes it, God. And you're in heaven, seated in the highest place, and nothing, nothing can separate us from your love. Lord, not the enemy, not ourselves, not the world, nothing can separate us from you. For you and you alone, God, are worthy. And I pray that you'd break forth in our hearts, God, that we would truly worship you and celebrate this, these truths that are deep in your word. God, cause our hearts to break forth in such a worship that we stand in awe of who you are and it is just a natural flowing from our hearts. God, we ask you to do this incredible miracle in our midst. Even in this moment, God, would you cause just a spirit of praise to come over us? God, do this for your glory and for our good. God, do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh,